you can see okay hey everyone uh welcome to episode number 82 of the lift free and diet hard podcast i'm your host andrew coates and uh i brought phil graham on here today and uh, so i'll tell you a little bit about phil but we we're just talking off air about phil not being a big fan of the whole business mentorship concept and space but and, and we know that that term business coach has been corrupted by a legion of like these teenage looking guys, you know, posing in front of cars they don't own. And they're in your DMs on Facebook and ask you, oh, tell me more about your business. So Phil is one of the elite few business coaching professionals who mentor other trainers, try to dance around the language a little bit, who, you know, a lot of you guys have heard of, hopefully, if those of you who haven't. You know that the people who I bring on this podcast is, who are business mentors are credible. They've got a lot of experience. So, Phil, let's let's dive into that one. Let's have a little bit of fun. And, uh, and of course, for anybody who's not super familiar, you've got a legacy of coaching of your own, and you're, you're based out of Belfast, Northern Ireland. Welcome to the show. Correct. Correct. And I know this is uh, an American slash Canadian crowd mostly, so the accent that you're hearing is Northern Irish. It's a mix between... Uh, kind of uh, Irish, American, English, and a whole host, because every time I go and travel the world, I end up saying something and going into my local slang, and somebody asks the question, could you repeat that? So uh, <laughs> hopefully I, I, I can communicate clearly in this. Andrew, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I know how much time these podcasts take to, to shoot, and dude, I am all ears. I'm happy to share. Uh, I think it's important that guys get a little bit of context as to who I am and where I've come from. Sure. I've been. Um, and we were talking off there there, you know, 16 years of age just started for me. I was unhealthy. I was out of shape. And I remember going to school one day. And at that time, we used to go for breakfast every single morning in a local coffee shop. And we got what we call an Ulster fry. You might not have heard of that before, but long story short, it's two sausages, bacon, eggs, pancakes, a thing called soda bread that they have in Northern Ireland, and another thing called potato bread. And this stuff's lathered in butter and we also have over here we have tea and inside the tea we put two or three teaspoons of sugar so i remember going to school let's say to have the, looking forward to this breakfast and this was a routine of mine monday to friday strict routine straight in would go in with a couple of friends and i remember coming out of that coffee shop and i remember looking at the cars going by me on the street and i could not read the number plates and i thought that's weird there's something wrong with my eyes and then I remember going into school and I remember that day specifically, I was going to the toilet all and off maybe about five to 10 times. And this prevailed over the course of the week. My eyesight got progressively worse. I was looking out of the bus, looking at cars, and I couldn't read the number plates. Long story short, I said to my mom, she says, oh, you must have some kind of viral thing, brushed it off. And then long story short, I ended up going to the doctor and within a matter of seconds, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes. I was marched down this corridor uh, went through this dark olive green, typical national healthcare kind of door into this room where there was pictures of a diabetic foot and amputation and neuropathy. And I was sat down to a table with a diabetic nurse. And I really just listened as my mother cr cried her eyes out and I knew something was up. And I listened to the language that I was used about complications and about death and all of this kind of stuff. And the language used was may, could, potentially, possibly, there's a chance of, there's an increased chance of. And I went, right, language is speculative. It's not definite. And then I also heard and framed up around the, the words lifestyle, medication, mindset, nutrition, 
exercise. And I realized that there was hope. So automatically overnight from being completely unhealthy and not interested in remote exercise or anything like that, I had a high value on health. Fast forward, I went to study nutrition in university for seven years. My dream was to become a dietitian and help other diabetics. And then I turned that into a personal training business because I started the gym. I turned that into a, a very successful junior bodybuilding career. Turned that into a personal training career. Turned that into an online coaching career. I was one of the first online coaches in the UK. And then took that information and insight and built a very large community called Diabetic Muscle and Fitness. Wrote the world's first book on diabetes and muscle building called Diabetic Muscle and Fitness. And a host of other things. We created a whole membership lab and site. We had we had clients from everywhere from Puerto Rico, the whole way through to Brazil, Australia, Ireland, up the road, everywhere. And people were running around with diabetic muscle and fitness t-shirts. And I created this almost movement of bodybuilders and strength enthusiasts that had type one, that had to inject insulin every day, et cetera. And that, that business format really, really taught me a lot. And at the same time too, uh, I had a lot of coaches over that period that gravitated towards me and said, hey, can you teach me what to do? And I was very good at it. And I taught them and I realized, hey, you know what? I'm actually teaching people here how to make a living and I'm actually kind of enjoying it because there's a mindset element about it, about building courage and self-belief, but at the same time teaching stuff on marketing and sales, which is actually quite interesting and something that I'm interested in. And I think every personal trainer or coach that becomes an entrepreneur gets this whole marketing and sales and systems and operative kind of uh, insight that they've never had before. And they realize that they can utilize these elements to make their mission and make their impact far greater. If you know how to market, if you know how to sell, if you know if eventually how to build and run a team or lead people, you can actually take your passion for health and fitness and you can actually then align it through systems and through people to help reach more people. And that's quite a fascinating and addictive thing when you start to realize that you can actually create a bigger impact beyond yourself. And one of the biggest turning points in my business, when I shifted my belief of thinking that I always had to do, you know, one to one to one to many, and I began serving more people, I began creating, you know, more products and more services. I began leveraging more uh, of my time and energy into a team and systems, and I could impact three people at once instead of one, and things like that. And I suppose it's a matter of, you know, having that mindset, but compounding all the activities that lead to that: the hiring, the building of systems, the okay, that system doesn't work anymore because we've we're, we're grown up. What do we need to change um, and stuff like that? And, you know, social media is a, is a vehicle for you to have a voice for that and to essentially present it. And, you know, the rest is history. And now I, I run an extremely large mastermind. I believe we are the, the largest fitness business mastermind in the world. I focus on Europe, UK, and Ireland predominantly. Um, and, uh, yeah, we've changed uh, an awful lot of lives. So, yeah, happy to share insights, lessons uh, that I can today. And, you know, you said something at the start of the podcast there about, you know, fitness business mentors. And I, I kind of find that a grimy uh, kind of, of, of name. Whilst I love what I do, you know, we have a lot of clients that come to us and learn the thing, build a business, build it for a year, and then try to become a mentor on the side. Uh, we also have a lot of coaches that, you know, eventually don't realize that they're not really great at helping people and then end up going and try to just essentially sell marketing and sales. And, um, you know, when you're mentoring somebody, there is an awful lot of responsibility. And, you know, it goes far more beyond just making money. We've got clients that, 
make a considerable amount of money and that doesn't satisfy them. You know, there's only a certain amount of money that you need to actually have a really great quality of life. And there's a point, there's a threshold that goes on beyond everyone where it's unnecessary bloat and more money equals, you know, more wealth, more wealth is hard to manage. You're then worried about keeping the money. You're worried about the tax. You're worried about, you know, the expenses. And I've seen many businesses that have grown and developed very fast, but have also collapsed because the founder runs out of happiness or doesn't like the pressure. And I suppose, you know, the biggest, most important thing for everyone listening here that, that, that runs their own business and, you know, as a responsibility to bring in revenues, you know, getting clear on the difference between what you need and what you want and realizing that you really control that expectation. And most of the time, that expectation is influenced by what you see on social media. And a large amount of my success is in direct proportion to the amount of time that I have spent on social media. And that's not a lot. I am not in any way, shape or form. I spend, I have an alarm on my phone or I spend less than 30 minutes on that a day. And I try to avoid browsing the endless noise that is there. I know the people that I follow. So my, my information is created. Um, you know, I, I, I know what the responsibility of my social media is there to do. I have quite a private life. You know, it's very, you'll not see me with a picture of a, a Ferrari or a, a private jet or anything like that. That's, you know, if I wanted to do that, that's for me to enjoy in the background. And, um, you know, I'm on the journey with the people that I want to help. And I think that's a very important message that I wanted to put across. And I did talk to you about the cultural beliefs around money and success and the difference between America, Canada, back here in Ireland. Uh, it's very, very different in terms of how we, we market and how we, you know, promote and things like that. So happy to share principles and, you know, take, take questions as we go. So let's, let's poke around at, you know, some of the stuff you talked about there, because as I mentioned, there is this proliferation of these shockingly young looking business yeah. coaches and DMs. And what's your take on that phenomenon? Because we all kind of know it's, it's sleazy and it, it's sort of dominated the conversation, but there are legitimate mentors and professionals who coach or other um, fitness. I'm fumbling with the language because you don't like the language, but what else, what do you think is the basis for credibility for a quote business coach? We'll say. Yeah. Very good question. When you look at a, a business coach for me, that is somebody that has overcome extreme adversity in actually running their own business, but still managed to crack it. And I mean, adversity in terms of, health adversity in terms of maybe they've had a gym or two or wherever that they started their coaching career that being closed down they've had to restart whether they've taken an online business from absolutely zero and built it to a high six figure and also the amount of lives that they've impacted the team that they've made and the the, the wealth that they've created for their team and the impact and the growth that they've brought their team as a as, as a as a leader of them in terms of educating and inspiring them to actually create and follow a mission. So I suppose you've got to look for one, have they actually ran their own business before? How long have they been running it before? Um, two, you know, you could go into certainly, you know, knowledge and insight um, in terms of nutrition training and stuff like that. But, you know, I know a lot of people who have a great deal of information, but are not good entrepreneurs. I also know a lot of people that are great personalities and actually run great businesses, but don't know an awful lot about nutrition, training, et cetera, et cetera. Give an and example. Pete Dupuis, 
So if you're familiar with Pete, Pete is Eric Cressy's business partner. And Pete is very clear on the fact that he's not the coach. He's the business guy. And they formed this partnership yeah. early in their careers. And Pete is one of a, a frequent previous guest, someone who I point to to say, hey, go learn about business principles from Pete. And Pete will be the first person to tell you, he's not the trainer. He's not the nutrition guy, but he is the sales, the systems, the business guy. Correct. And I mean, that's an aligned force where you've got two people together and you've got a left arm and you've got a right arm. But I suppose if you were looking at metrics to essentially score the health of somebody as a, as a coach in a fitness business space, what were their results like? Were they able to get consistent results with their clients? Did they build any form of community? Because if I'm getting results and if I'm getting community and I'm doing that at a relative scale, then it goes to demonstrate that I actually know how to provide value consistently and also back up the price point and have people willing to continue to pay me. And you can look at the traits and trails of that, you know, over a period of time. And I think, you know, there's so, there's so much scope for, you know, personal trainers, online coaches, you know, to have, you know, masked that up and actually, you know, ditched that and gone into the fitness business mentoring space with no real trial record. Um, And, you know, when you look at marketing and you look at sales, you know, you can craft language, you can engineer graphics, you can falsify credibility and make it look, you know, really attractive and lucrative. But beneath all that, there's character, there's identity. And, you know, a lot of these business coaches, you, you know, you could look at their history of, you know, their personal training business and they've been in it maybe a year or two. And I mean, look, everybody's trying to do their best, but at the same time too, you know, the big difference between selling, marketing, and sales, that's, that's completely different. But if you're looking for a comprehensive fitness business coach, they understand the trade. They understand the craft. They understand all of the nuances around client communication. And they understand that it's much more than a you know, personal training service. It's actually you're dealing with relationships, you're, you're community building. Um, you're going into the fine detail. Like I can remember back when I was coaching, you know, and a part of this was fueled by diabetes and my own selfish desires to understand nutrition and training. But, you know, I would have sat in on a Saturday night and obsessed that we're reading a biology book or a nutrition book or how a biomechanic works. So in order that I could advance my service and get better results for my clients in a quicker, more effective and efficient time frame, And I like that was all linked to like I said, my own desires to become the healthiest version of myself. But I also wanted to package that information and just like really deliver, you know? And I think it's, you know, highly obvious when you look at somebody that delivers consistently um, through a reputation. Like, don't get me wrong, you know, like I said, sometimes you can go into a gym and you can see a coach that's got a great personality that doesn't really know much and they've got the biggest client base and they do the best. But at the end of the day, you know, people are going to them and going back to them for a particular reason. So there's elements and traits there that you've got to look at. And I think one of the biggest turning points for me in my career was when I realized that there were people less talented than me in terms of experience and knowledge charging more than me. And I felt almost like this world's best kept secret in the sense that I was like, why am I not, why am I not, you know, doing the equivalent of them, but I'm spending all this hours researching and doing this and that. Why am I not being rewarded as much? And I think if you do feel like that, there's an element of you that does actually need to stop, take time to actually understand business, understand marketing and understanding sales, because you will never be able to have the impact that you want or the revenue that you want 
or the actual potential and opportunity if you don't understand how to run a business. And I see a lot of coaches that are great at what they do. You have got a lot of experience, but don't know how to run a business. And then they end up working themselves into the ground. They end up skint. They don't have enough money to pay. And that's a shame because they play such a huge role in the front line of health and, and you know, keeping people accountable and stuff like that. And, you know, that's quite a, you know, painful thing. Because it's not funny when you're working 40, 50 hours a week on the gym floor and you feel that you cannot move. You're scared of losing clients. You know, these are all examples of people that just don't know how to work their way out of a trap. And that requires business acumen and it requires confidence and it requires courage. So how do yeah. you push through that narrative that coaches have? Well, oh, you know, they're, they're afraid to charge more because I just want to help people. Right. How do you how do you break through that? Well, I think that's a narrative um, and that's derived from belief issues around money. So when you actually I realized that I could impact more people when I was making more money because I was obsessed with my fitness career. And I would have invested in any education, any books, anything that somebody would have put up, I would have bought, whether that was equipment, whether that was, you know, vol slides, who cares, right? Um, if I wasn't making the money, I couldn't invest in the skill sets. And part of me, I wanted to be the best coach. I had, the, I had a desire to be the best coach in my gym. I had the desire to be the number one in the country. And I knew that I couldn't budget my way to that. I knew that I had to pay for experiences. I knew that I had to pay for information. And I saw it as fair exchange because, you know, I was going to learn from, I remember going to like learn to pay. I was paying coaches that were, you know, in different countries. And I was like, these guys have spent 30, 40, 50, 100, 200, 300, seven figures on their education. And I'm accessing that. I'm fast tracking my knowledge. So I realized that if I wasn't making money, I couldn't fast track things. And the number one thing in a business is finder happiness. And finder happiness comes from not only being aligned with your vision and your mission for what you want to do, but also having capacity to take rest when you want it. And you can only take rest when you're comfortable financially. There's a lot of coaches that are afraid to take a bit of time off because the minute that they stop working, they stop making money and they've got a belief issue that they're going to feel or the clients are going to go elsewhere. What way is that to live? The number one reason why we set up a business is for freedom. And you do not have freedom if you're constantly worried about money all the time. And now is no better time is now than to talk about this because inflation's at like over 12%, 10, 12%, right? The cost of living, go and look at the cost of petrol or diesel, go and look at the you know, the cost of food, go and look at the cost of delivery of goods, go and look at the cost of buying a new car, right? And you'll realize that you actually need money to function. Um, so in saying that money is not important is, is futile. And like I said to you before, there is a big difference between, you know, the greed of having more and more and more money versus knowing what is actually enough. And, you know, you can only impact a certain amount of people based on the amount of money you pay yourself. When I start making more money, I can afford to hire a second set of hands. When I start making more money again, I can afford to hire somebody to do sales calls that I don't want to do anymore, but I can focus on the coaching and the delivery. You know, if I want to run a live event with 100, 200 clients, and I'm going to do that myself, 
how can I be expected to serve every one of those clients and be my best? So I need to have money to be able to buy the systems, the team, the labor, the man part to be able to do that. And please don't get me wrong. Not everybody wants to do it to that scale. And that's fine. And your scale is your scale. But, you know, money is a very important metric and it is a sign of value being provided. And if somebody is continuing to do well over and over and over and over and over and over again, it denotes that the value is being provided consistently and customers are willing to pay. People are a lot tighter with their money now. There's a lot more options out there. And if you are a coach and you have clients that are staying a year, two years, more, whatever it may be, you're providing value above and beyond for those people. And that's evidence that you are a valuable asset in the lives of people. And, you know, you have to bear in mind with fuel increasing, with food increasing, you know, and you're not increasing your rates every now and again to accommodate, then you're going to, you know, go backwards. And uh, I don't know about you, but financial trouble is not a nice feeling. So, yeah. And I think everybody listening has probably felt that at some point or other, or maybe you're feeling it right now too, right? Which is why I try to bring someone like you on here who's got valuable insight. I mean, we could riff on, you know, macronutrient fucking ratios all day. It's overrated. And honestly, I don't get too excited about that. I have learned over the time doing this podcast that I'm more interested in basically success principles and to help people either find great resources, great people to follow. And you know, all, all the stuff you're talking about, I hope is helpful. Well, we'll just put it that way. And people will decide for themselves, they'll plug in more of your media. Something else that you had mentioned earlier, kind of off air, especially, was we, we've seen a big surge in online coaching in the last couple of years. And a lot of people did really well with it. And there's almost sort of the emphasis that there's a bit of an illusion because the world is it's pivoting back to people are feeling more comfortable media, social media is less about, Oh, you have to stay home. You're a bad person. If you don't stay home, blah, 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 all the, all this, the junk that came with that whole thing for the last two years, that's wearing off and people are starting to get back to normal. So is there a bubble with online coaching and what are your thoughts about kind of the next you know, couple of years and how people consumers will respond to online coaching and some of the challenges people will have with growing online businesses? Great question. Let me explain what's happened over the last two years. If we go back to before COVID, the very moment before COVID happened, before, if you were probably like me, you heard it in the news and went, stupid news, what's that about? And then all of a sudden, you get a call, and then you get another call, and then you go, oh, maybe this is real. And uh, shit starts to go south. So online coaching beforehand was a kind of people weren't totally accepting of it. They were like, I would rather train in person, not online. That was the general hearsay around general public. The only people that really loved online were people that had training experience for a year or two more and weren't beginners, right? But what happened when lockdown happened and gyms were forced to close and it was illegal to train, the only option people had was an online service. The only thing they could, they, they could, like, you know, you couldn't go out of the house, you couldn't go to the gym unless you were doing an underground or whatever. So a couple of things happened to, first of all, the consumer. The consumer craved routine, craved discipline. They were afraid of missing out on the opportunity to work on them, themselves, personal development, develop themselves, get, get lean, use it as a health kick, right? At the same time, from the coach's perspective, it was a uh, do or die. 
If you're not online, you're fucked, right? You're going to lose it all, gyms included. So you've got coaches that have got fear of missing out and opportunity to make a lot of cash because the consumers wanted online coaching. There's a need for it. And the supply didn't meet that. So what happened over two years is a lot of people learned how to build an online coaching business and learned how to market. Everybody was doing fucking 5130s and I help such and such in their bios. And the amount of people using that service was going through the roof. A lot of coaches made a lot of money. Simple as that. What's happened now is that the market sophistication level has gone through the roof. People have a lot more options. People have tried an online coach before. They're immune to a lot of the marketing techniques that are essentially being utilized. The cost of living has gone way up. Inflation's way up. There's a war on. And there's a lot of like, you know, panic around like what's going to happen. And people have shifted from a fear of missing out mindset to a preservation mindset of, you know what, coaching's not a necessary expense right now. That's fine. And what's happened is there's a 10 times the amount of online coaches out there fighting for way less clients. And what you find is the top 5% of online coaches are working with 95% of the market. And the other 95% of naive coaches or beginner coaches are fighting for the bottom 5%, right? So the biggest thing that you can take from this is at the moment, if you're marketing your online business or your services, that you want to be marketing buyer safety, that if you invest in me, then I'm going to really ensure that you get the results you want and it's not going to be a ripoff. Because we were getting a lot of people that were shit coaches that actually got quite okay at the marketing and the graphic design and made an impression that they knew what they are talking about. And that happens in the fitness industry all the time, right? You see it in local gyms. You see it you know, with certain personal trainers. They put somebody on a diet and lose weight for a while and bump they haven't conditioned the right behaviors or the right infrastructure or, 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 you know, the right thinking principles behind sustaining a result. I always talk about, you know, getting a result is important, but sustaining the result is more important because it essentially builds the identity, the beliefs and the integration of the, the activities and the behaviors and the day-to-day beliefs that require that result to remain. So, you know, now, you know, we've had a lot of online coaches that are struggling to get clients in the me and general market niche. Right. You've got some exceptions there, you know, guys that are working with entrepreneurs who can business expense it, et cetera, et cetera. But general population, right, is a, a generally trickier one because the cost of living's gone way up. But if you're on the bread line and your mortgage has gone up, your oil's doubled, your gas has gone up, or whatever, you know, your 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 travel's gone up. You know, we've got people now that can't afford to travel to work anymore because the cost of their fuel's doubled. Right. Not a lot of people know how to manage their money. Not a lot of people have savings. Most people live on a credit card, right? In America, I believe it's worse. So, you know, that's essentially what's happened. So over the last two years, if you look at Peloton, if you look at Netflix, if you look at Zoom, all of these baby or Netflix or uh, pandemic boomers have dropped 50 to 70%, right? So people are spending less time on Zoom, less time on Netflix, fuck all time on Peloton, you know? And, uh, you know, the joke recurring going around, you know, lost a few pounds on Peloton. Well, you've lost, you know, thousands of pounds on Peloton. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, yeah, the market's shifting. It's returning back to pre-COVID times, except there's 10 times the amount of online coaches. And I firmly believe that it is going to be harder 
the sell one, two, three K plus packages, unless you have a huge following in the next one to three years. And there's something there at the very tail end about the following, because that's sort of a, a weird contentious thing. And I've been doing some presentations on the value of this recently, actually, by the time this is aired, I'll have completed my uh, uh, recovery and sleep summit presentation. And there are a lot of people who like to say, including our friend, Jonathan Goodman, who say you don't need a large social media following in order to do a great job as a coach. Now, John, I'll have some fun with because John is also himself rapidly building a social media following because he sees the value and he's right in that you don't need it. But I'm a big believer that if it's something that you have the opportunity to embrace, there can be a lot of value in it. And there's also an element of social proof. And as much as this sounds almost silly, people look at someone who's got a larger following and they assign more credibility to that person or more status in the industry. Now, we know there's a lot of flaw in that. I, I like to point out that the Kardashian sisters and the Jenners, there's five total, they have five of the 20 biggest Instagram followings in the world. They like to share fitness, nutrition, lifestyle advice. It's terrible on average. But in our industry, a lot of the more well-known, credible people do have larger followings. It's why people buy followers to create the illusion of credibility. But I'm a big believer if you're already doing a really great job with your coaching, I'm a big believer in developing long-form content, credible vehicles for reputation, what I like to call career capital, and then do something with your media that allows it to scale. It's, some, it's a formula that I've been working on and trying to show people how to do. And honestly, I don't even, I rarely promote my online coaching. And yet I get relatively frequent DMs about it asking because people have read my articles on various websites and they like my philosophy and they say, hey, I want to come talk to you about training. And it's honestly, it's keeping me flush. My in-person business is, is, has always been strong based on word of mouth referral business, but now it's even easier because I've got that social media side of things and I've made it fun. So but it's something that I actually think has a lot of value. I don't think you need to do it. I don't think it's for everybody, but I also like to defeat the whole idea that people dismiss it out of hand because, oh, you don't need that. Often enough, that's a sour grape sentiment because someone has actually really struggled with you know, the, the effort, putting in the effort consistently to grow, you know, a, a, some sort of following or some sort of brand. Um, let's, let's go in on this one. Um, are there any missing, key missing things that you feel a lot of coaches mistakes are making when it comes to brand and marketing strategy? You know, that maybe that ties in with everything we've already talked about, or some yeah. ways you think, given the changes now to the business climate, online coaching, demand for it, things that you think that coaches need to pay attention to? Yeah, let, let, let me paint a couple of scenarios here because um, mm -hmm. this is important. Um, I have a friend of mine who owns Grenade Protein Bars. I don't know if you have them in the States, but they're um, extremely large company over here. They were recently bought by Cadbury. Um, my friend Alan is a nine-figure entrepreneur. He has 2,000 followers, right? So it really depends on what you're utilizing social media for. Now, I've seen two extremes of this. I've seen clients of mine that have huge followings, bigger than 10 times bigger than mine and yours. When they go to put a call to action rate for their business, they get swamped with low quality uh, prospects that essentially overwhelm them and quite frankly block the ability for them to get quality leads. It's like finding a needle in a haystack. 
The problem with that is it's exhausting, right? On the other hand, I've got clients that have got 4,000, 6,000 followers and do over 100K starting the month, which is 200, maybe 180K or whatever dollars. I'm not 100% sure, but it's, it's a good whack of dough. It's a seven-figure business. And you've got to ask yourself, all right, if I'm building, like my principles were, if I was building a quality, one of the last things that I would want is to be inuited with low quality prospects that I couldn't help or that couldn't afford to work with me. What I wanted was prospects that were really interested in what I had to say that were able to afford me, willing to, would have trusted me, et cetera, et cetera. And that is a very slow route. And the thing is like, you know, I have a, another friend of mine who's built an extremely large audience, like James Smith. You might know him. He's over a million followers. And, you know, James posts controversial stuff, uh, you know, comical stuff, a lot of entertainment, a lot of piss taking, a lot of this and that. And he sells an app at five ninety nine. There's a lot of clients on it. A lot of clients leave every single month. But he relies on the volume. And... You know, there's only a certain kind of character that can get away with that, right? And that's people with the huge, huge million followers. You know, he needs 100,000 or 50,000, even 20,000, 10,000 to make a relatively good living from that, right? People will try it for a month, two months, three months, then leave and then stop. Whereas if you're selling something that's a premium or higher ticket, like maybe 1K, 2K, 3K, up to 5K plus, you know, 10 clients, new clients a month, which is not a lot, is 50K. And if you've got a back end and you're keeping those people for a while, you've got a grip program and you're a great coach, you can really stack, right? So I suppose, you know, the question is, and I, you know, I asked myself this at the start of my career, would I rather be rich or famous? And I said rich. I didn't want to be famous because I would realize that I would be getting pastored. I would be getting, you know, literally inuited with stuff. And I couldn't help everyone. And that is a decision that you need to make. And I suppose some of you may say, well, I want to be both. And of course, you can approach that goal. But at the same time, too, be prepared to have your work cut out for you in terms of sifting through or having offers that accommodate people at the lower levels. And, you know, those take time to build. But, you know, the quickest path to wealth is to have a, you know, two to 5K offer sell it to 10 people every single month and provide an incredible job, you, you will surpass 90% of the population in terms of wealth very soon if you build a great business. And, you know, I don't share an awful lot of my personal life on social media. I don't share, you might see my house in the background or whatever. I don't really want to do that, right? You know, there's no benefit to me sharing my car, sharing my house, sharing what I do on holiday, sharing my new kid on it. I show little glimpses of it. The main thing I want to be known for is that guy talks a lot of sense. He's got a lot of wisdom. I don't want to be an entertainer. I, I find myself quite rigid, to be brutally honest. I can't be, I can't, you know, I can't be quite funny in the background. If you were to come around to my house, we would have a few beers or a wine and a barbecue. Yeah, you'd see the loose side of me. But in terms of putting that on social media, you know what? I don't really want to build an audience around humor. And I want to build an audience around value and insight and wisdom. Um, although I like to show my humor every now and again, you know, it's, it's one of those things, build it to your strengths. And 
remember why you're doing it because losing your mind over your following size not being big enough is not in any way shape or form a wise move think about you know how many calls am i generating or how, how many people clients am i generating a month from this am i able to impact their lives is what i'm putting out meaningful and insightful etc and you know you know, I've seen what you guys have done. You guys have exploded recently, you know, with just real insightful quotes and informations and shareable stuff and collaborations. And, you know, like my approach is different in the sense that, you know, we have a lot of people coming and quite frankly, you know, I don't want to be spending a lot of time on social media. You know, for me, it's like, I want people to find me. And that's just, that's just my life cycle at the moment just had a new kid we've got hundreds of clients uh we, we rely on a lot of word of mouth um that is of course opening to change um but you know it, it really depends on what your goals are you know if you want to really become a global impactor and let everybody know that you're at the forefront of information you've got to be getting eyeballs on your stuff and i think from you know a business growth perspective and following size you're certainly safer with a larger following because there's more opportunity in that. But at the same time too, you have to weigh up the quality quantity thing. That makes a lot so, of sense. And there are some headaches that come with, you know, the growing following. It takes more time. There is more engagement, more stuff to respond to. And for me, you know, I value it at this present time, but I can see a shift over time. You know, a, I don't have any kids, but I know people, my buddy, Matty Fusaro, who's, a following in the same range as you and I just recently hit 40,000, but he's sort of taken a bit of a step back from his aggressive social media because he just had a kid. Right. So we're seeing that. And I, to, to your point about humor, I think there are only a few people that do humor. Well, Ben Bruno does humor. Well, James Smith, yeah. humor well, um, my pal, Tom Morrison, who I had on who's in Belfast, he's pretty funny, dude. He's just irreverent. Right. But, uh, I think a lot of people force it. So Mike Gizertel, he was the previous guest. Mike is one of the funniest fucking people in the entire industry. If you sit down and listen to him and he's not even trying, he just like, it's the guy could have been a stand-up comic instead of a PhD and a bodybuilder. If he had chosen a different path, he's just a funny dude, right? His delivery. But uh, I can't, I can't force funny to save my life. So I don't, I don't bloody try with it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm the same. And I mean, you know, it's one of those things where sometimes I find myself, saying, should I be more funny or should I show my humor side? And then it's like, well, you know, what do I do here? And, you know, you've got reels and TikTok and, you know, the pointing thing. And that's not me, right? That's, that's simply just not me. And I, I am not, I am not prepared to do that because I quite frankly don't want to. And I don't need to. So, you know, I have, I have built my social media you know, I have one day a week where I shoot my reels. I have a system with my uh, media guy where I record my stuff or repurpose stuff. And we, 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 we put out stuff and, you know, for, for, I want my content to be boring for some people. I want my content to be uninteresting for some people because I'm not interested in helping you or working with you. It's not for everyone. And that has been a, a belief shift that you really have to have is like, you know, in order to be selective, you've got to be deselective, right? So when you try to appeal to everyone, you know, it's quite overwhelming. And again, what is the main goal? Do you want to be rich or do you want to be famous or do you want to be both? I don't want to be famous. 
I want to be known for wisdom and impact, of course, and that's with the right people. But can you think about how overwhelming and alarming it would be to have Kim Kardashian Kandash- Kim account and try to share your life and just openly face criticism every second you're alive to every time go into your social media to have millions? Like, that's to me, that's that's the definition of hell. And I think I can't remember who said it, but you, know, you want everybody to know your name but not your face. And I think that's a, a great principle to live by because the more famous you get, the more distractions it's there, and you officially become a target. And then you have to fight off all that stuff. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying, you know, if that's what you desire and you like and you, you, you've got the right protection around, you go hell for leather at it. And sometimes what you'll actually find is people that are famous become famous by mistake. I recently asked a guest, Brandon Sen, this one, if you would want, if you could wake up tomorrow and have a million followers, especially a million engaged followers. And his answer was a hard no. My answer is a hard no. I don't want to deal with the volume of headaches and time that, that comes with that. And you, what you've opened up in this episode is a really good illustration of that, where the amount of effort that would go into maintaining that community that people are looking in the wrong direction with this sort of thing. And especially if it's not translating into an equivalent amount of, I'll use the term wealth, right? Benefit, wealth, whatever someone's goal is, then it would, in my mind, never be worth it. And, you know, I've got a, I've got a a target, right? I just hit 50,000 followers. I really, and people might think, oh, that's stupid. You can care about this thing, but I feel like there'll be a lot of value in the grand scheme of things. You know, if I can reach a hundred thousand followers and continue to do the things I enjoy, I think that would be very valuable, but I don't want to put like aggressively scale to a million. We got these people. I, I recently had my pal, Eric Robertson, and he skyrocketed to a million TikTok followers. I can't imagine what it's like to try to get into those comment sections or to do anything with it. You must have some really awesome systems in order to be able to leverage that. So I don't want any part of that kind of chaos. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think it's really important that you sit down and go, what are my goals with the social media account? My goals are to present my business. My goals are to provide valuable information. Okay. What am I willing to invest into it? What am I clear in terms of my time commitment? What do I love doing? What do I dislike doing? And what income do I want to generate versus what is my uh, income at right now? So what is the gap? So for example, if you're at say 15 to 20K in terms of monthly revenue and you want to go to 50K, that's like a target for you. Then you've got to go, okay, where is the most effective use of my time to book the calls to allow me to have that conversation and close those deals? Have you got an email list you're not tapping into? Have you got, you know, uh, what's your most average frequency posting? Have you been posting a day every single day or multiple times a day or, or every time like once a week, you know? There's a lot of stuff that can be achieved organically. And I can tell you that, you know, organic marketing will work for a while. And then it gets to a point where you need to force it in front of people. Now, the reason why I say that is really simple. Organic, you post something once, it's seen and it's gone. Or if somebody shares it, it's seen and it's gone and forgotten. If you use paid marketing, you've got the ability to target people specifically you then got the ability to do that 24-7. You've got to remind them about the message. I know people that have very small followings that use pet advertising 
And for example, even in my own business, I don't have a huge following. I've got a medium-sized following, but I use pet advertising. What does that mean? My core goal is to impact lives and make money doing it. Simple as that. And I have adverts running 24 hours a day that are targeting people that already follow me and people that have got my interests, which means from a time management perspective, I don't need to be an Instagram whore. I post once a day. I post a handful of stories that are relevant. And I let the pet advertising do the work. And it's essentially creating many filigrams all over the world, all over the internet, following you around on your phone that are essentially reminding me that I'm there, right? And every now and again, we will iterate what is on the front end of that. So look, the, 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 the assumption is simple, is that you, know, you look at building an Instagram account, writing copy takes time. I don't care how good you are. Right? Writing, writing, writing a good Instagram post could take you 10, five minutes to 45 minutes. We've all been there. And the frustration that comes with fuck chains outline, don't like that, it's too long. It's the, like, you know, it really depends how big you want to scale revenue-wise and what you want to do with it as well. Like, you know, we're, we're probably talking to a lot of people here that you know, might not have aspirations to go to an eight-figure business or a multi-seven-figure business and just want to make enough money to have a great, fun life. And you do not need a lot of money to do that. So... You know, those are my two cents on it. Just keep the keep the main goal, the main goal, and don't lose yourself in the quest for just more followers that essentially can't do anything with. There you go. Phil, it's been awesome chatting with you. I appreciate it. Let's let everybody know where they can find you in your media. Uh, guys, just follow me, Phil Graham. Search me on Instagram. You'll find me. I'll come up. I'll be the first one. Somebody else took Phil Graham. I'm Phil Graham one, but uh yeah, my main, my main uh, website is phil-brain.com. I have a podcast myself called the Fitness Entrepreneur Podcast. I've been running that podcast for close to nearly 10 years now. I've had Mike Grizzatel and all those guests on it. It originally started off as Elite Muscle Radio. And then as I closed the bodybuilding chapter, um, uh, I turned it into the Fitness Entrepreneur Podcast. And Andrew, would love you to have you on. Thank you so much for having me on. And I know how much time these take. So, dude, we're very grateful for you. Oh, my pleasure. You and I have been kind of circling each other, interacting like in, in pockets on social media, you know, a little bit of interaction through our friend, Jonathan Goodman. And I enjoy these episodes that I encourage anyone to, if you want to do more long form content and do something beyond just the coaching, I think the podcast is one of the most successful vehicles you can create because it also gives you the opportunity to interact with people, whether it's old friends from the industry or people you've interacted with, you get a chance to go face to face and you get on a call for an hour. Why not actually record it and share it with everybody else, right? Which is kind of what I like to do. And, uh, and of course, hundred percent accept your invite. We'll chat. And for anybody who may have found my podcast through your media, well, you know what, take a, take a walk through the guests. This is episode 82 of the new format. And I had a pivot as well, 150 episodes before with my former co-host Dean, who's wonderful. And I've had, again, the Mike Gizertels and the Luca hosts of ours and, the, and anybody, if they're local to you, uh, Ben Mudge and Tom Morrison, local Belfast guys as well. So I've got a lot of friends all over the world in the industry. They've been great. So hopefully you stick around, check out a few more. And for everybody else, please go check out Phil's stuff. You know what? We all could use more of a shakeup when it comes to our preconceived notions about 
and our limitations, our limiting beliefs about what we could possibly do with our business and with our income. And, you know, a lot of people get inside, oh, I just want to help people. No, fuck that. You will help more people if you scale your ability to reach more people. And if you're earning a livelihood, and I'm paraphrasing you, a lot of us are worried about staying in the game, especially the last couple of years. If you stay in the game and you are not worried about paying your own bills, and if life is treating you well, you will be able to make a much greater impact in the long run to change more people's lives. Love it. Yeah, 100%. Appreciate having you on, my friend. Uh, We'll chat off air in a second. Everybody listening, thank you again, and stay tuned for a new episode next week.